Nisambo Lovinaka, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Koroe Hawkins. Coming up... Create more employment, create more investment. That, to me, is a better way of securing a better society for our country than to militarize this country. A former Solomon Islands Prime Minister says China's security pact will not address domestic instability. Hotels, restaurants, we're losing people from the service industries that support that. And let's face it, everybody in the Cook Islands is in the tourism industry one way or another. The New Zealand government is being urged to add Fiji to a transit visa waiver list to make it easier to address staff shortages in the Cooks. And We have already lost more than 50% of our coral reefs. We catch less than we have in the past. Niue reaffirms its commitment to maintain a maritime reserve across its ocean territory. A former Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Gordon Darcy Lilo, says the country needs an economic solution to its instability problems, not a security one. Lilo said he could not understand how the current Prime Minister, Manasi Songovare, could justify signing a security cooperation agreement with China to quell public discontent in his government's handling of national affairs. Earlier this week, Honiara and Beijing confirmed the signing of a security treaty despite serious concerns raised locally and internationally about the deal. Gordon Darcy Lilo is supporting the calls for the document to be made public in the interest of transparency and accountability. Lilo served as Prime Minister of Solomon Islands from 2011 to 2014. He joins me now. Lenhola Mboka Somaramai Vivinepa Pacific Waves. As someone who's been at the helm of the country, what's your view on the direction Manasseh Songovare is taking with Beijing? Well, quite, quite honestly, um, I, I must say that uh, uh, I could not find the right pitch that uh, uh, put together you know, the kind of deal that he's now striking with China, or the security pact with China, uh, because the most pressing security issues at home uh, relates to bad governance, uh, relates to mismanagement of the economy. And people are reacting to leaders not being able to lead our country in the right way. That's the kind of reaction that the people are reacting to. And unfortunately, government is now turning around and saying that, look, these kind of views causes instability, and therefore I have to find another force to come in to back up uh, a government that somehow has been you know, ineffective or negligent or basically uh, lacks you know, the direction in leading the country in the right path and therefore has given rise to the kind of concern that citizens are now expressing. So that becomes an instability. That's how I see uh, what the Prime Minister is trying to say here, which is, uh, you know, it's, I could not put that all together, you know, in, a, in, a right, uh, in the right fit. And I remember having this conversation with you when, when, we, um, when you were Prime Minister. I asked you uh, why we were with Taiwan despite China having more to offer financially or monetarily, uh, as we see with our neighbours, Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu, all these infrastructure projects. Um, I, I just want to uh, uh, um, uh, go back to that time when you were in charge. Were there these, these forces sort of um, pushing and pulling for that recognition and, and bilateral relationship with Solomon Islands? I mean, this kind of uh, uh, issue has been around. 
um, they have been pushing uh, to try to get Solomon Islands into this uh, into this arrangement. Uh, but then this is where we have to exercise uh, some responsibility. And I would have thought that, you know, exercising fair responsibility, responsible leadership is what is required. And I'm not seeing it right now. That's, that's, that, that's the thing that uh, concerns me. Because uh, uh, the situation of uh, Papua New Guinea, for instance, is quite different as to why they have to get themselves, you know, better in with China, because, you know, Papua New Guinea has a very, very vast uh, natural resource. It has a very, very uh, uh, huge resource or extractive industries in the sectors of mining, petroleum, natural gas, and so forth. And, of course, you know, they need better market for it, and that's what they did with China. Uh, but they have never had any specific security pact with, uh, with China. It has always been on economic terms. And I just want to say that there's a lot that we can gain out of and could make a lot of difference in the way that our economy operates if we strike a better economic uh, arrangement, you know, with, with China, especially in terms of the prices of our extractive industries in the forest sector, for instance, you know, that uh, one of the single biggest uh, destinations of our forests from the uh, South Sea logs species is China. And we could strike a deal with China and say that, look, you know, give us a better terms on the price, which we have never ever enjoyed before. Or pull out the input duty that you have imposed on the prices from South Sea logs and improved on the final price that is reflected on the income flows into our economy. You know, some, some arrangements like that, you know, could have happened. Could have happened, and I'm 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 pretty sure that China would turn around and say, "Look, you know, we are we are happy to help you." But when we front load the issues of security, uh, when knowing very well that citizens rea- reacted to a kind of irresponsible, negligent, and careless uh, carelessness that you know we have been showing in managing the affairs of our country, uh, it does not give us you know a, a good position to be able to find another military to come in just because, you know, we think that our police lacks the capacity to be able to handle that part. And our, our government, our Prime Minister, um, has been quite vocal about calling on uh, regional neighbours to respect the sovereignty of Solomon Islands and this is a sovereign decision, it won't impact regionalism, uh, it won't undermine regional security cooperation agreements, actually complements it, he even says. What, what is your view on, on the concerns from the region? We have always, as a smaller nation, you know, we have always uh, worked on our regional strength, our regional architect. These are the platform that, you know, we have always been using to be able to uh, have our views known and uh, uh, raised at the international level. This is how we benefit out of our regional uh, institutions, our regional architect. And this is the first ever time that, you know, a country just pull out of that regional uh, uh, institution and then uh, uh, try to do things by its own self. Um, but remember that, you know, the first beneficiary, the first country to have benefited from the Bikataba Declaration or the Bikataba uh, Treaty uh, is Solomon Islands, you know, when we went down, you know, some, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, so we were the first one and therefore, you know, it came in the form of Ramsey. And so it, to me, it does not show 
you know, the kind of responsibility that we should be showing to everyone. We, we are acting like, like a child, for instance, you know, that looks at something and thinks that it looks better. So therefore, you know, we can just change our, our thinking, you know, uh, all of a sudden and then choose another choice. <laughs> Uh, that that that's the thing that you know it, it does not happen like that in in governance in in international politics uh, in international diplomacy and so forth. So I don't quite understand the way that you know in the kind of thinking that uh, that is going on here. Looking forward, as we await detail of this document, uh, what what do you think it's likely to contain? That document must be made available to Parliament, and what once it is made available to Parliament, then it. It becomes a public document. I always believe in documents that are made transparently and that citizens fully understand what are the, uh, the details of it and how it will work so that citizens you know, can participate in embracing you know, the kind of idea that we have around this, these, these arrangements because you know, it forms part of our international politics. Uh, our, our, our position in international trade, international politics and so forth. So, uh, that's that's the kind of uh, attitude that we should have, and I don't agree with the whole idea that you know it should be a secret document and therefore it should not be made available to to Parliament. Executive is accountable to Parliament, and just like in Australia, and New Zealand, uh, where the executive or the executive government must be accountable to Parliament, legislature, uh, and these are the nature of our check and balance in our democracy. We are a constitutional democracy, and I don't quite agree when people say that, you know, we have to check on China first before releasing the document. We should check our constitution when we should release those documents. And the constitution requires our executive to disclose this document to parliament. Uh, and I was expecting the leader of opposition to really press that point yesterday, uh, unfortunately, he didn't, he didn't press that point, and uh, I'm, I'm making that point now to you. Another final point that I want to make is this, Hawkins, uh, uh, that uh, the national security strategy of our country is broader in scope. Improving our policing capability is one aspect. Now we are drafting in a military regime in order to be part of building up our capacity so that, you know, we can arrest the kind of national or internal instability that we have that is threatening our status quo. The best thing to help our people, you know, to understand better on governance is for government to take responsibility to manage our economy, create more employment, create more investment. That, to me, is a better way of securing a better society for our country than to militarize this country. Militarizing a country is not, cannot, in a, in a, in a way, comfort our, our, our citizens. Citizens will become so suspicious because we have seen examples of how military is connect, connected to leadership, to government, and how it has been abused by leaders, abused by governments elsewhere in the world, like that. So it, it will not create a, a good understanding, you know, uh, to our people. So... Uh, when you look at the whole security pact that we have, I would have thought that, you know, they should pick economic security as the right pathway for us to talk with China, to talk with China. Get on with the, uh, the economic uh, uh, pact and then make a better arrangement for a more secure uh, future for Solomon.
These are my final comments, uh, Mr. Hawkins, and thank you so much for having me on this uh, program. Thank you, Thomas. Lana Hola, thank you, sir. Lana, yeah. Lana Hola. Thank you. Eko Carlin's businessman is calling on New Zealand's government to add Fiji onto the transit visa waiver list. Pacific Property and Anderson Limited Managing Director Steve Anderson says a severe worker shortage is suffocating employers with around 700 vacancies, largely driven by people leaving for New Zealand. Mr Anderson says there has been a lot of discussion around organising a one-off flight from Fiji, but it is not practical. He spoke with RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis. The hospitality industry, first and foremost, hotels, restaurants, we're losing people from the service industries that support that. And let's face it, everybody in the Cook Islands is in the tourism industry one way or another. Our economy is built around tourism. In terms of your business, can you please take me through the impact, how many people have left, where they've gone and, and what you're facing at the moment? The biggest issue we have is with some of our excellent staff who we've brought in very often from the Philippines to work and they're very attracted by the skilled migrant category visa which is offered in New Zealand which gives them a pathway to permanent residency with their families. So it's very hard to compete with that. Uh, We don't have the opportunity to offer anything similar in the Cook Islands. So a lot of them who have... They may have only been here a little while, are making plans to leave or, in fact, have left. I can't blame them, but the employer, like myself, has paid an enormous amount of money to get these workers to come here, and we've got no way of recouping that money if if they leave after a short period of time. I think what we're finding is that uh, New Zealand obviously has lost a lot of its student workers who have serviced the hospitality industry in New Zealand and so is looking further afield. And the sad thing is that a lot of the Cook Islands employers have done the hard work to recruit people from overseas and bring them to the Cook Islands. It can cost thousands of dollars in recruiting fees. Typically, you have to pay two or three months' salary to a recruitment agency, $3,000 airfare, $1,000 in medical and other fees. So they come to the Cook Islands and the New Zealand employer who recruits from the Cook Islands doesn't have to pick up that cost. So they take our staff, attracted by much higher wages in New Zealand, and we're left in a very difficult situation to replace them. How much out of pocket are you because of this in terms of the fees that you've paid that then New Zealand has benefited from? Oh, I'd say in excess of $20,000. You also mentioned that it's a quarter of your workforce, which is incredibly significant. Are they all workers in the same situation, tempted and seeing the bright lights of New Zealand's minimum wage as well? I think that's a a reasonable generalisation, yes. I mean, each have got individual circumstances. And as I say, I don't blame them for leaving, but the story of my businesses is the same throughout almost every business in the country where people are leaving and we've got an industry we're trying to grow back after COVID and we're being deprived of the workforce to do that. Employers and the government have supported workers throughout the two years of COVID uh, by um, various means to keep people here as much as possible, keep them employed, keep them fed uh, until now. And it's just sad to, uh, to have them leave 
now when we've supported them in the last two years. Uh, and to be fair, New Zealand has uh, given a substantial amount of aid to the Cook Islands government to assist with that process. But it's sad at the end of that to have them have them leave uh, after that expense. And leave to New Zealand, to the country, supporting the Cook Islands in the first place. Yes, and, and I'm not complaining. Um, we're very grateful for the support that's come from New Zealand, but it doesn't address the issue that we've got, which is a desperate thought, shortage of workers. What would you like to see changed to take the pressure off your business and other businesses suffering? I think it's a very difficult situation and the dynamics of COVID are just unprecedented. So I think there just needs to be a consciousness with employers and government of some of the unintended consequences of policies. So for instance, a policy which opens up immigration requirements into New Zealand and offers permanent residency to people has the unintended consequence of stripping the workforce out of the Cook Islands. And I'm not a politician, I'm not going to advise politicians, but I would hope that there is a consciousness of the dynamics and unintended consequences. What sort of talks or murmurings are there about alternative ways to get workers? Is that a viable option to bring workers from Fiji instead or what, what is being talked about? I would love to talk of a, a charter flight direct from Fiji. Fiji isn't, as I understand it currently, can't get the visa waiver, the transit visa waiver, and so it's difficult to get Fijian workers via New Zealand. Is that something you would like the New Zealand government to change? I think that would be very helpful if it was for the sole purpose of having people transit through Auckland to get to the Cook Islands. I'm sure it would assist employers greatly. Immigration New Zealand says although Fiji is not listed as a visa or transit waiver country, people can apply for a transit visa. Steve Anderson says it is good news, but also just another loophole employers need to jump through. New Air has reaffirmed its commitment to maintaining a maritime reserve across its entire ocean territory and exclusive economic zone, enforcing a ban on all foreign commercial fishing activity and imposing catch restrictions on local fishermen. Established in 2020, the New Air Nukutulia multiple-use marine park covers 317,500 square kilometres of ocean area, larger than the entire landmass of New Zealand. Finau Funua reports. Last Friday, New Way's Premier Dalton Tangalangi told a crowd of students at the opening of the country's national dance competition that the reserve would help counter the negative impacts of climate change. We have already lost more than 50% of our coral reefs. We catch less than we have in the past. And while you may be too young to recall the impacts of devastating cyclones, let me assure you, we are still recovering from the impacts of Cyclone Heta 16 years ago. Niue is one of the smallest countries in the world, home to just over 1,600 people. It is a New Zealand realm country, which means it relies on Aotearoa to defend its territory and borders. But despite its small size, Niue's marine conservation policies are among the largest and most ambitious in the world. In September last year, it designated 40% of Niue Nukutu Luea 
as Moana Mahu, a fully protected area with a total ban on all fishing activities. In English, Moana Mahu means sea of plenty, a metaphor to Nui's bold conservation ambitions. Kate Brown, an advocate for environmental sustainability in the Pacific Islands, praised Nui at a press conference held in Auckland last week. And it has brought us to be more innovative. And more importantly, the Nui team is driving this project. We do not um, depend on somebody else to come and tell us. We drive. We get direction, we get help and assistance support, but the vision and the passion behind it is from the Niwe people. We have multitask and we are hardworking and we are very passionate. Niwe's Minister of Natural Resources, Mona Ainu, told journalists at the press conference that marine life would thrive in Niwe's undisturbed waters. Ainu said that it was a moral duty for every country to protect its natural resources for future generations. We all have a responsibility to leave behind for our children and generations to come the rich endowment of natural capital that has underpinned all the generations before them. We cannot leave behind a debt that our children are unable to bear. According to the United Nations, the world's maritime resources continue to deplete at an alarming rate despite environmental policies around the world having increased 38-fold since 1972. Over 27% of the world's coral reefs have been destroyed, and at the current rate, 60% would be gone in three decades. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. More Amanda.